In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcast and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. And welcome to episode 20 of Scottish Blethers with Liz Lister and Helen Houston and myself, Susan Brown. This week, we have some great topics coming up. Helen, what are you going to be talking about? I'm going to be talking about pies. Liz? I'm going to be talking about the Gleska Patter, the Glaswegian dialect, but it's a bit broader than that, talking about Scottish language in general. Excellent. And I'm going to take everybody way back in history, about 6,000 years ago, to Kilmartin Glen, which was requested by one of our listeners. But before we get started, I'd just like to do a shout out to Pam, who will be listening while she's doing her ironing, (laughs) and to Claire, who will be listening as she finishes off her 50 miles for January for Maggie's Cancer Care Centres. So uh, hello to you too. You were on, on our virtual tour of Carnegie's Dunfermline just the other night. So without further ado, over to you, Helen. Well, thank you, Susan, and congratulations to Claire. That's brilliant. So pies. In Scotland, we just love our pies. We can put almost anything into a pie. Steak. Brambles, mince, apples, rhubarb, the list is endless. So what is it about a pie that we love? Well, I would say that it's easy to eat. We can hold it in our hand. And football, football and pies. Football is the national game. And at half time, that is time for a scotch pie, usually washed down with a cup of bovril. Bovril's a kind of a meaty drink. I don't really like it. The Scotch pie is believed to originate in Scotland, where it is simply called a pie, but can be found in other parts of the United Kingdom and widely sold all over Canada. They're also known as mutton pies, and these have a very long history. And would you believe, in the Middle Ages, they were frowned upon by the Scottish church, viewed as luxurious, decadent, English-style food. In later centuries, they proved to be convenient and sustaining snacks for working people who would buy them hot from the pie men or the pie wives in the city streets. And the space at the top of the pie, created by the raised crust, would sometimes be filled with gravy, beans or mashed potato. The hard crust of the pie enables it to be eaten by hand with no wrapping. Typically, there's a round hole in the centre of the top of the crust 
And each year since 1999, there has been a competition held. The Scottish Bakers hold the World Championship Scotch Pie Awards. And the winner of the Scotch Pie session is the World Champion. A Scottish four for Bridie is a meat and onion filled pastry that's popular in Scotland. The traditional and authentic Forfar version uses short crust pastry. However, bridies are often made with flaky pastry in Scotland. I think the ones in Dunfermline are flaky pastry. In the US and Canada, it would be referred to as a handheld meat pie. These are said to have been made by a travelling food seller, Maggie Bridie, who sold them at the butter market in Forfar, hence the Forfar bridie. They were also mentioned by J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan, who was born in Kiri Muir, just outside Forfar. Filling of the bridey consists of minced steak, butter and beef suet, seasoned with salt and pepper, sometimes made with minced onions. Before being baked, the bridey filling is placed on the pastry dough, which is then folded in a semicircular shape. And finally, the edges are crimped. It looks a wee bit like a Cornish pasty, but they're very different. If the baker pokes one hole in the top of the bridey, that indicates that it's plain. It doesn't have any onions in it. If he puts two holes, that means it does have onions. And you often get that same convention carried out with the Scotch pies. On New Year's Day, the traditional meal is steak pie. And although we make steak pies ourselves in the home, I have to say butchers make wonderful steak pies at New Year time. Of course, we do like our meat pies as well. And my favourite is, believe it or not, girls, rhubarb pie. Although bramble and apple is another favourite. Well, with all pies, I believe that they're made or broken by the pastry that's used. A mutton pie, for example, must be in a hot crust shell while a steak pie, for me, has a puff pastry top. My mother used to make an apple dumpling in which she lined a bowl with rolled out short crust pastry and filled it with sliced apples, folded over and sealed the top and steamed it for what seemed like hours. But it was fabulous. And I think I'm going to try that myself. Now, listen, Susan, what about you and pies? Are you pie lovers? Oh, steak pie. Cannot beat a McDonald butcher steak pie from Pitlochry, that's for sure. Well, I can say without a word of a lie that I had a Scots pie for my lunch today. It's just as you say, Helen, it's quick, it's easy. You pass the bakers, it was a takeaway. And I love them when you get the mashed potatoes and the beans on the top of the Scots pie. Oh, yes. And wasn't there something, uh, Was it a couple of years ago, there was a suggestion that the European Union might be getting rid of was it the macaroni pie yeah and, and even Nicola Sturgeon the first minister's father phoned her up and said you better stop this you better stop this <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and she mentioned that in parliament <laughs> and talking about your macaroni pie if you go to Oran Moor in Glasgow once it's open again once we're all allowed to do oh, stuff yes. they do a play a pie and a pint and you basically, for for the one price, you get three little ticket stubs and it allows you entrance to the play and you pick up your pie on the way in at the bar and it can either be a, a meat pie or it can be a macaroni pie. And then you've got a little ticket stub for a drink, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, and then you sit down and you can drink and eat whilst you watch this little mini play going on on the small stage. It's fantastic. 
That's lovely. Yes, I've heard about that, but I've never been, Susan. I must oh, it's amazing, must especially the Christmas panto. It's also, you know, listening to you about your rhubarb and your apple. It's funny because we don't tend to call it a pie. We would call it an apple tart. Yes, um, you're right. Just, you know, um, some, people, some people call it a pie and some people call it, but I think a tart is quite Scottish. Yes. I just think it's such a super concept of putting everything inside pastry. And it doesn't matter what it is, just put it inside pastry and it's a pie. And never mind the calories. <laughs> Shush, Susan, stop swearing on air. <laughs> if you go to Dundee, of course, the famous character is Desperate Dan. Oh, it's yes. cow pies. We've even got a statue to Desperate Dan. So if you're a fan of the Beano and the Dandy, the DC Thompson comics, you've maybe heard of Desperate Dan. That was his favourite food. Yeah. They were big, these cow pies. Well, did they not always have cow horns sticking out the top or yes, something? Yes. yes, we'll need to find some photos or some, yes, some images absolutely. to put on uh, our social media. We'll now just wind that up. I'm going to take you back about 6,000 years ago to a valley in Scotland, down the west coast in Argyle, called Kilmartin Glen. And the there is about 800 ancient monuments and standing stones and rock art and cairns within a six mile radius of this little village of Kilmartin Glen, which stands on what was a a kind of a raised beach above the valley floor. So originally the river was much bigger and it went off into the sea on the west coast of Scotland. But over time, that, that big river has become really a trickling stream. And the people that lived there became farmers. And there's so much to find in Camarton Glen. You've got over three miles, you have got five chambered cairns or burial cairns. And a cairn is basically a mound of stones, but they would have entrances in. And there's five of these that line up just beautifully one after the other in a south by southwest kind of line. The oldest one is from about 4,000 BC, so 6,000 years ago. And inside it, they found two kists. So a kist is like a a square box made out of stone. And in there, there, they would have put people to rest. They would have buried people in a kind of fetal position. And this one is about six metres or 18 feet long and about six feet high at its highest. And in there, they've well, the oldest one in Nether Largy South, they found Neolithic pottery and also some arrowheads. But this isn't all that they've found in this glen. They have found rock art round close by at Achnabreck, and there's rock art on some of the standing stones that are in the glen. So you've got the Ballyminnich standing stones, where there's two groups of stones that are in parallel r- lines. And on them, some have what they call cup and ring marks. So if you can imagine taking a a round stamp, putting that onto something, and then kind of drawing a circle around the outside, you've got this cup and ring marks. And they found so much of this rock art. But you've also got stone circles. And I know the Outlander fans, you know, think about the ones up near Culloden, Clavacairns. But actually, down in Kilmartin Glen, you've got some wonderful standing stone circles in Temple Wood. And the ones in Temple Wood have have changed over time. They reckoned it started with timber and then it was shortly replaced afterwards with stone. And over time, there has been four phases of development at Templewood, and it's definitely worth visiting, especially in the spring 
when the bluebells are out. Uh, I took a group there a couple of years ago and we had a fabulous time exploring all of this. And they reckon that there's some kind of lunar or solar alignment with the various standing stones in the Glen. There's just so much to see and do and only so much I can talk about in two minutes. But ladies, have you been there? What's your favourite part of Kilmartin Glen? Yeah, well, I had one tour last year and believe it or not, we went to Kilmartin Glen. It was absolutely beautiful. And I mean, even if the stones and the burial cairns, you have no idea what you know, they are. Just to walk through them, you are actually stepping back in time. So it's a magical place. And the temple wood standing stones are beautiful, aren't they, Susan? Yeah, I loved them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely loved them because they, they went from being kind of standing stone circles to being burial areas as well. Yeah. And they had these stone kists in them as well. Obviously, there's nothing left of the people that were buried there all those thousands of years ago. But in some of them, they have found charred remains or kind of what's, what's left basically of cremations. What they've also found is some artefacts that have shown that there was a huge amount of trade going on. So some of the pottery has links to Ireland. And then you've got these remains of beautiful jet necklaces, not complete necklaces, but parts of them. And they reckon they came from the east coast of England. So there was obviously a lot of trade going on. Yeah, I must confess that I've never been to Kilmartin Glen. It's one that I've still got to tick off on my list of things to do. But I mean, we're so blessed in Scotland to have so many of these burial chambers that give us an insight into prehistoric times. Certainly, I love Clava. I love the atmosphere at Clava. Mm. You know, the rings and the you know just the use of different stones, the colour of the stone, the mica with the little flecks glinting in the sunshine. How these people built them, like we would be, build cathedrals or great buildings today using what they had but also up in Orkney and Shetland of course with those areas being so remote you know the the burial chambers that you have there Cairn Papel just outside Edinburgh yeah fantastic insights into the past and it's not just about the prehistory so in Kilmartin churchyard which is just in the village just at the kind of start of the valley or the glen you have got 23 gravestones that date back to between 900 AD and 1600 AD and some of them have got soldiers or what looks like knights carved into them and they think these are possible knights templars so there's so much to see and there's a wonderful little museum there and a cafe and gift shop so once everything opens up again you've got plenty to do and you've also got Donad as well the crowning place of kings. I was just going to say that Donad is all part of it isn't it? Yeah just a bit more towards the south but another site well worth visiting so if you're going to be coming to Scotland come across to Argyll on the west coast and you could easily spend a day a whole day between Donad uh, down towards Crunan and the whole of Camarton Glen if that's the kind of thing that interests you. You may be better explain what Donad is. Yes, so Donad is a big mound of stone, really. It's a, it's a big solid mound that overlooks the, the Moyne Moor uh, moss. And this would once have been the sea all round about it. And it has evidence of occupation there with a defensive wall around halfway up this rock. And it was said to be the centre of the kingdom of Dalriata. And this is when the Irish came across to Scotland 
onto the West Coast. And the Dalry Adams was one side of Scotland and the Picts were really on the other side of Scotland. And eventually the Dalry Adams, well, they <laughs> they had a little dinner with the Pict with their Pictish counterparts, and there was a little bit of such a fuge at Schoon near Perth, and they basically pulled the pegs out their stools, all the Picts fell over, and the Dalry Adams <laughs> came in and killed them all. <laughs> and the thing about Denad too, that um if you can get up to the top of that mound, I as I say, it was there last year, and I have to say the last wee bit's a bit of a scramble, Susan, isn't it? Just but a little bit, yes. <laughs> but you can put stand in the footprints of these Dalriadan kings on the very top of the mound. Well, I'm just wondering if the Dalriadans served up pies to the pigs for their dinner. Well, maybe they did. <laughs> Before they poked them pies. to death. Yes, <laughs> pies. <laughs> well, I think we should move on now. Come on, Liz, give us a bit of your Parliama Glasgow. Glasgow Parliama Glasgow. Okay, right. Well, I thought about this when I was reflecting on a past life when I used to go out to recruitment affairs and I worked in recruitment and admissions. And I would go to Dublin and I would stand in front of an audience and I'd start to speak and people would titter. And I used to think, you know, is my skirt tucked into my tights here? You know, what are they laughing at? And then I would realise they were laughing at my accent. And nowadays, two members say to me, gee, Liz, we love your accent. And I always say, what accent? I don't have an accent. It's you that's got the accent. You know, we all think that we're, we don't imagine ourselves to have an accent. And I don't know if there is such a thing as a general Scottish accent. Certainly, we roll our R's. We say murder and great, brilliant. And we also like our locks. But Largely across Scotland, it's down to local dialects. And perhaps the most colourful of all of the local dialects is the Glaswegian accent, the Gleskapater. It's even got its own name. For outsiders, it can be unintelligible. Even when you write it down phonetically, it gets even worse. And I remember on one occasion where we have a bus driver who's called Wee John or Ouija John, Glaswegian John. And him and I were having a conversation after dinner talking about the driving for the next day. And after we got up, one of the tour members said to me, was that Gaelic that you were speaking there, Liz? <laughs> I said, that was Ouija. Right? So it is, it is sometimes difficult for outsiders to understand. And sometimes it can be interpreted as dark, threatening, violent, scary. We've got a number of books and films that portray it in that way. The most recent, Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, just won the 2020 Booker Prize. But it's actually a language that's very much based in humour. It's a very funny language and there's certain characteristics associated with it. First of all, in the Glaswegian patter, they tend to run words together. You know, it's a kind of laziness. It's easier to say one long word than lots of short ones. Now, Liz, I'm going to stop you there because when I'm editing and I'm trying to take out something, you run all your words together and it's really <laughs> difficult. And I don't even have a Glaswegian gene in my body. <laughs> right, ladies, I'm going to test you. I'm going oh. to test you on this, right? Gone giza. Oh, yeah. yeah. What does that mean? What am I giving you? Right, are I, you going to give me? Yes. Gone giza. And a very famous one. Gone ne do that. Oh, gone ne. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. So let's go. It would go. Gone ne do that. How? Just gone no. Because, of course, Glaswegians don't say why, they say how. That's another one. 
they'll instead of saying how are you today they'll go all right <laughs> how are you and always in Glaswegian patter they always add some sort of descriptor on at the end like pal. all right pal yes. all right big man all right wee man you know, whatever whatever comes to mind and if they don't do that then they'll they'll always add at the end of every sentence by the way so yes. it was it was guy cold out there by, by the way, way. Yes. they always do that and then you've got the other famous one amarang yeah, amarang so you say is that an eclair or a meringue no yes. you're right it's an eclair yes <laughs> amarang am i wrong oh. so a lot of things associated with the glaswegian patter and it was made very famous in the 1960s by one of our top Scottish comedians, a man called Stanley Baxter. He's actually still alive today. He's in his 90s. He's absolutely brilliant. He is brilliant. He was brought up on the West End, in the West End of Glasgow, in Kelvin Said, which is very oh, the posh part. Yeah, yes. And he was a natural mimic. And he would listen to his mother as she sat playing bridge with her pals. And he used to base his characters on a woman called Marjorie Milne and her accent, her Kelvin Said accent. And he became an absolute national treasure, particularly he was an actor, he was an impressionist, but particularly a pantomime dame. He could mimic females brilliantly, even the Queen. And in the 1960s, that was not the done thing to be mimicking the Queen. But he was loved. He developed a character called the Professor. And out of that came a series on television called Parliamo Glasgow. Now, this was based on an Italian programme where you could learn Italian called Parliamo Italiano. But his professor came down as a social anthropologist examining the people of Glasgow. And it was as if they'd come from Western Samoa or somewhere like that. He would do a skit where he would play a Glaswegian and they would go through a conversation and then he would play the erudite professor translating for you what they were actually saying in the Gleska patter. And even people outside Glasgow loved it. It became hugely successful. One of the top programmes on television through the 60s and 70s. So if you get a chance, go and look at it on YouTube and see some of the Gleska patter. Things like Ziaf. And then he would interpret as it could be used as is he off his heat which means is he crazy is he off his meat which means is he off his food or is he off his work which means that he's on the sick he's not at his work one of my favorites tumultutra any ideas what that is ladies tumultutra or tumultinti no no i can't think of that one he's just tumultutra's bed so lovely Glaswegian dialect. So what are your favourite Glaswegian words, ladies? I think that they, they use words, for, you know, we go back to lavatory humour, you've got the kludgy yeah. and the closey. Yeah, adding E at the end of it. But I yeah. think you couldn't talk about the Glesca language without talking about profanity. Because the Scots, <laughs> you know, they've been said that the Scots excel at expletives. They use swearing as an art form. And it's true. You know, I'm always very conscious when I have American visitors that visit and we go out to the Gellians Bar in Inverness or somewhere where you're getting down and dirty with the locals. The Scots use the F word, like punctuation marks. Yeah, yeah a bit like really the Irish, only. really. 
that said that. Um, and, and they do. It's not abusive and it's not meant as insults. It's just the way that a lot of people talk. If you think of Gordon Ramsay on the television and the F word there, he's, he was Glasgow, although he doesn't have a Glasgow accent now. But think of Billy Connolly. Think of, um, we have other comedians like Kevin Bridges. And I'm sure yeah. we've talked about it before. Some people have listened to the elevator sketch about 11 Bernie's too, which is Glasgow <laughs> humour as well. You know, that it, it is absolutely riddled with this, with swear words. And it said that the first written historical record of the F word being used was in the time of James IV in the 1500s, where it was two poets <laughs> having a, what's called a flight, which was a kind of rap going between them and where they would each answer the other. And that was the first record of the F word. So it's not insulting. It's not meant as being disrespectful. It's just the way that Scots in local dialects often use to make their language more colourful. Yeah, I, I always remember when I worked at the college before becoming a guide, walking along the corridor behind two young lads who were describing very excitedly what a great weekend they'd had, but they'd no, they'd no other descriptive words except the F word. My mother always used to say, your excessive use of profanity shows your deplorable inadequacy of vocabulary. <laughs> oh, I like that. Gosh. <laughs> well, that's a bit, well, I know uh, Billy Connolly, obviously a fantastic Scottish comedian who has now hung up his comedian boots, but he used to use the F word right through all his stuff, but he used it in such a way you'd be laughing with him. Fantastic Glasgow humour. It is yeah. it's interesting to think how in the 1960s, in the time of Stanley Baxter, the 1960s, the BBC would not allow any swear words on the television, even through the 70s. And Billy Connolly kind of broke that barrier down. He made mm -hmm. it acceptable as humour. And nowadays, you know, the, the language is still, there's certain words that still have to be approved if they're going to be used by the BBC. They have to have um, purpose in their use. But I would just to conclude this, I would just say that there's a fantastic BBC Scotland programme, which is, oh, I can't remember the name of it now. It's Scotch about. Um, no, no, it's about the use of bad language. All right. Scotland, um, I'll put it up on the website. Now, it is a hard watch, but it's so interesting. So I'll put it up on our um, social media because I've just forgotten the name of it just now. And, you know, if you're interested in the sort of anthropology, of language in Scotland. It's very interesting to watch. Yeah. And of course, you can't talk about Ouija words without mentioning the word gallus. <laughs> yes. If you say someone's a bit gallus, you know, oh, that's, a, that's a gallus person over there. It means that they kind of have a sense of arrogance, but, you know, they're kind of strutting around like a, a cock-a-hoop, cock you know, who's who's the head yeah. person or whatever else, you know. Cock of the north. Exactly. Yeah. Another good Glasgow one. She's a right stoter. <laughs> <laughs> She's good looking. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Or you were blutered if you're out at the weekend. Oh my, I just got blutered. 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 Not there's yeah, no tea in blutered. No tea. Yeah. That's correct, Helen. <laughs> there's there's so many. And that's why I like doing our word of the episode, because you get so many words that, that kind of come back to you. Or, you know, if I'm out walking yes. with my mum or I've been talking to some of the family, every time I hear a word, I go, oh, I could use that one. And I put it straight into my phone so I can use it in our word of the episode. Yep. So what's your word yep. of the episode today, Susan? My word of the episode, you know, it's a difficult one to pick because there's so many good ones. But given that there is still snow and ice on the driveway, here and you've got to be careful my word is skating 
So if you skate about or you're skating, you're basically sliding. You're just about ready to end up on your bahuki, which is your bum. <laughs> Helen? Well, my word is to do with the pies. You go into the shop and you see, just two pairs, and eight of them, eight of the pies, eight of them, eight and all, eight and all. <laughs> okay. Give me two pies, please, and one of them with in with onions in it as well. <laughs> We're eight and all. Right, now, is that a Fife thing? That's Dundee. I love the Dundonian accent. Just love it. But it's another one that's hard to understand. And one of these days, I'm going to do an interview with a friend of mine who's an Aberdonian, but he's a fisherman and he comes from uh, Fraserburgh. And oh my goodness, you'll not understand the word, but you just love to listen to it. So I've used loads of words, um, Glasgow words today. I'll finish up with a couple. Isney. He isney very clever. Is not. And Arnie. I'm only very clever, which is I am not, or I am me. And so again, this running together. And you can. You can. Very good. Fantastic. By the way, by the way. Big man. (laughs) I'll be talking like this all day now. Your family are going to love you. I'd just like to finish up, though, saying a huge thank you to Helen for running her virtual tour of Carnegie's Dunfermline last night. It was absolutely brilliant and it gives us something to aim for in all the tours that we've got planned going forward. So every two weeks, we are going to be putting on a virtual tour that you're welcome to come and sign up to. It's £15 per device and it's going to be at 8pm UK time, which is 3pm Eastern Standard Time and it'll be on a Thursday. The next one is St Kilda Islands on the Edge, and that's one that I'm doing. After that, we've got Edinburgh, Tale of Two Cities with Liz, and we've got loads more planned right up to May. So if you're sat at home with nothing to do, you can sign up by dropping an email to scottishbletherspodcast at gmail.com, and we can send you the details for, for our PayPal account. And it also means we've got your email so that we can send you the login details as well for the event. Brilliant. Yeah. That's great. And it's amazing to think that this is episode 20. I mean, whoever thought we'd get here? And part of the reason for running these virtual tours and charging for them is that we hope to do things like build a website, improve our logo, professionalise it. So that's why we're charging for the virtual events. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.